You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. So I'm here in Wilmington, North Carolina, and you're probably wondering, what am I doing in Wilmington? Well, it just so happens that one of the best conferences I've ever been to is here. And so we're here to talk to some of the people who organized this and talk about what's going on. So first, can you all just kind of tell us who you are and uh, where you're at right now? I'm Sarah Shear. I'm at the University of Washington, Bothell. I'm Christina Cheetah, and I'm at East Carolina University. I'm Liz Saylor from the University of Georgia. I'm Elizabeth Bellows from Appalachian State University. I'm Lisa Buchanan, and I'm here at UNC Wilmington. So we have a conference going on here that you guys just made up and put on, which is awesome. (laughs) How did this happen? So a couple years ago, we were getting together just to have a writing retreat, a thinking retreat, and also an airing out of grievances about... The treatment of elementary social studies, elementary social studies research, particularly like the critical points of view of elementary social studies. So we first came up with a book idea, got that going, did the book, and then we're like, you know, let's all get together and have a conference and see if anyone will come. And thankfully to the the dean and the folks here at UNC Wilmington who helped put this on, we have close to 70 People from, what was it, 19, 19, 19 different states having really meaningful conversation about how they teach elementary social studies methods, how they engage in their research. Mm-hmm. There's classroom teachers here talking about their own practice, pre-surface teachers asking really amazing questions mm-hmm. about, you know, the preparation of their identities as as educators. And so it's it was kind of this big dream and it's come true. It's mm-hmm. kind of surreal. Mm-hmm. I like how you guys got together and as kind of a group and you're like, oh, we're just going to, you know, write a book and start a conference. Usually when I get together with my <laughs> friends, we accomplish nothing. So, so congratulations on that. It's a really, it's a really incredible conference because you're right. Social studies has been on the back burner. Props to my advisor, Neil Hauser, who wrote social studies on the back burner article and helped me understand the, the problems with the issue in the nineties. So so what what has the conference been like for you all? You know, we are we're recording this. This will probably be at the beginning of the episode, but we're recording this kind of most of the way through the conference. So what's the conference been like? This is Liz. This is probably one of my favorite conferences I've ever been to. And the reason is because, and this also was a reason for this conference, I feel like when we go to other conferences, larger conferences focusing on social studies, It's just that the elementary was so marginalized. And so then when we would have these individual sessions, there wasn't a lot of time to talk about our methods specifically. So for me, I have really appreciated that. I feel like these conversations have been happening kind of like on your way to some other event or in the hallways. But here there really has been a great focus on specifically our methods that we can share together and just get new ideas for what we're doing with our students Mm -hmm. in the classroom. This is Elizabeth. I think many of us 
felt um, when we found each other to write the book, we sort of knew. And just as our friends, Katie Payne and Katie Swalwell, who started our Crest Facebook group, that's Critical Resources for Elementary Social Studies Teaching, through the writing of the book and through collaboration on that Facebook Crest page, we've been able to find each other. Whereas before at these huge conferences, mm-hmm. we're, we're trying to seek each other out. And so here we, we created this space where we can all be together for an extended period of time and talk extensively about the issues. And what we're finding is that we have the same issues and we're doing a lot of the same methods, but we're also doing a lot of methods differently. And so it's been really cool to hear from everybody um, about how they're working toward a more critical elementary social studies education. This is Christina. And one of the things for me is just what, what Elizabeth was saying about just c- listening to the different ways that people are doing this work. And I keep thinking, okay, I gotta, I gotta revise my syllabus for fall. And then like the next hour I'm like, Oh, I gotta add this too. And I'm like, I'm not quite <laughs> sure how to fit everything in yet, but um, it's been really enjoyable and kind of and challenging me too, to, to think about uh, things in different ways. And then one of the other cool things for me has been because of Crest and the the different social media, I know these names and now all of a sudden I'm meeting people and putting a face to the name and really Mm -hmm. getting a chance to sit down and talk with them in ways that you can't in social media. So um, Mm -hmm. that's been really cool too. And I don't think, I think when you're at a bigger conference, Mm -hmm. you're not as likely to run into people and, um, and see them. So that's been great for me. I also really appreciate how you all have had some innovative formats in this conference, right? So you have some spark sessions that are really allowing people to share ideas and actually get real feedback, which is like kind of supposed to be the purpose of conferences, but we jam in so many sessions that we Uh often don't get to get real feedback. So it's been really neat for me, I know, as a participant, just going around to sessions and and learning from everyone. I just wanted to say, this is Lisa, the, the energy has been amazing. So yes, yes. we we also have colleagues, although this is Elementary Social Studies Summit, we have people who are attending that also teach middle grades and secondary or exclusively teach middle <coughs> grades and secondary. And they were encouraged to attend because the things that we're talking about for K-5 here or pre-K-6 here are all applicable for the middle and secondary level. And so some of our peers here just recent, just earlier at the coffee break were commending sort of this is the first conference they've been to that has this type of energy and camaraderie and this idea that like it's okay to be able to critique and push your peers in your field further, you know, for the good of the students that are going to be in the classroom and that, it, that this is a place where that's like encouraged and welcomed. And I thought that to me, that's been one of the best things. The energy starting just from Dr. An's presentation on yesterday throughout today has been just great, just great energy and camaraderie among the group. I just think the caliber of the people that are here presenting are amazing. There isn't, uh, I mean, just someone already stated wanting to cut yourself into multiple pieces because you just (laughs) want to go to everything that's Mm -hmm. here. And I just think that's fantastic. And that's, you know, a lot of people have echoed that throughout the conference. Yeah. So yeah. That's great. And knowing, too, that there's just a little bit of time left. And, folks, the 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 buzz at Coffee Break right now is like, where we're are we doing this year. next yes. year? Yeah. You know, and so we're going to have a, a good 30-minute, I think, conversation about next steps and where we go from here at the mm-hmm. end of the conference. Mm-hmm. But just to echo Lisa's sentiment about the energy, like, people don't want this to, to stop. Mm-hmm. And so I think also the timing of the conference was really good mm-hmm. it wasn't yes. right after the end of the semester mm-hmm. you had some marinating time to just like get over mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. but now it's june and it's summer and so coming to the beach i don't know there was something about maybe 
the beach energy too, mm-hmm. you know, just yeah, feeling we like were, on vacation. And I know you're going to like edit this yeah. and things like that, but I will say, you know, for the audience that we were very deliberate in the way that we planned out when this was going to happen. Mm-hmm. We were very deliberate in the way that we approached about funding this and thinking about how the conference, instead of just jumping in saying, hey, let's write a call for proposals, right? We thought about what, but what is the goal of this? We are setting this precedent here with this first inaugural. What do we want it to look like? You know, and then a year or two or five years down the road. So I think that was something that's kind of unusual. We didn't want it to look like the other spaces that we're a part of annually for, mm-hmm. you know, for RTP basically purposes. Mm-hmm. And we wanted it to be something different. And I think that brought a new energy and sort of life. It's been a place for people to network. I think that's so mm-hmm. important. People have been able to network here and will continue to. And I think we're all in agreement that this is definitely happening. We just got to work out the logistics. Mm-hmm. Like we're going to keep this going and we have good support for it. So. A lot of, e- it's easy to fly to Dallas, Fort Worth. So we'll see you guys in Denton next year for, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> hey, 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 take it on. But let me tell you, I'm from Dallas and I don't want to be in Denton in June. I know. <laughs> Hey, that's why I'm here. Don't you cut yeah. that out. Yeah. Um, well, thank you all so much for putting this on. I will give thank one more plug, too. Thinking about how much conferences often cost, this conference was very inexpensive, and all they do is keep giving me free stuff. Yep. I get free yeah, food, food, free books, maybe free booze. You know, it's a, it's a lot of stuff. So. <laughs> so thank you all for your efforts. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. The summit kicked off with some pre-summit clinics, which helped to really start the conversations on Thursday before we had the full day on Friday. And so we're here to talk about one of the, the pre-summit clinics. Can you tell us your name and where you're from? My name is Soyeon An. Uh, I teach at Kennesaw State University. And so I've already been to your session. And first thing, let me say, you have incredible energy. I love the energy you bring to your sessions when you have it. So can you tell us a little bit about how you kicked off the conference and what your pre-summit clinic was about? So my clinic was about like unpacking patriotism in elementary social study method course. But first of all, like I didn't even expecting like I'm invited to do the pre-clinic. So then, but then the more I'm thinking about, there's many topics that I can work on, but then I really love and like to thankful that like my chapter i wrote like unpacking patriotism for the hour the first the sarah and all the edited book so mm-hmm. i thought what well, this is a great like honor to the you know the amazing edited book but then also it's a patriotism it's a, for the elementary it's a great topic like important topic so my clinic was all about like how we can how can engage our pre-service teachers unpacking patriotism so that they can whether they teach or not teach about it, but they can be critical about, like a critical rethinking about the way that how elementary school, like I put promote the type of patriotism in school. So mine was mostly about like, you know, share, um, sharing what I do and also like engaging and just sharing what I do. So some of the practice that I'm sharing, but then I also wanted to like hear from other old audience, but then like I didn't, I didn't have much time, but like <laughs> I, I hope that I kind of showcase that something that like I, I found like working for me. A lot of times in schools, there's a type of patriotism that seems normalized that is this kind of patriotism of love of country that's uncritical, that assumes that everyone has the same rights and responsibilities and and views things the same. But what you really did is you challenged us to look at different views Mm -hmm. of patriotism to think through different lenses about what that could mean. So how did you kind of, you know, come up with your methods for doing that? And how has that worked in your own social studies classrooms? Mm -hmm. 
I think that's pretty much like a, when I when I share like what I do because you know unpacking patriarchy or the patriarchism. The reason I got hooked into this one and it become the one of the core of my pedagogy was about the difference between me as a foreign faculty. Although now that I'm American citizen, but back in the day I'm foreign faculty. Even if I'm a legalized citizen, my students still see me as a foreigner. So then my historical positionality as a, like a foreign Asian woman versus my student their historical position of social political positionality as from the like you know middle class white and southern and christian a lot of my students are coming from the military background so then it started with the 2011 my student course evaluation say hey dr An, if you hate america go back to your country right if you hate american democracy and capitalism go back to your communist country so <laughs> that one it that course evaluation was a painful but then it really tells me about what well, I need a, I need to do a better job. So then, like you know, in consideration of who I am versus who my students are. So how can I, like, a students not just shutting me down to oh, doctor, she's just here to bashing America is all bad thing. So how can I? engage them into like a, a collective inquiry into like a what truly what we mean by you know good citizen what do you mean by good patriotism so then i come up with a, like a different types of a different conceptualization of patriotism one of the things about patriotism is all about like a critical examination of a united states have done to the rest of the world so like domestic issue is a huge thing, but then also on the other part about you know students open thinking like a U the that we have the patriots and love of my country, which means like unconditional love of our military. What America has done because America what America action in the world is all about spreading democracy and uh, you know uh, the word peace. So then one of the activities that I'm doing is about the Korean War, like a textbook analysis and role play and the primary source analysis. Right there, a student can see that, you know, it's not just the United States, even like a, me as a their instructor coming from South Korea, well, their country, her country does the same <laughs> thing, like a, just a, promoting one type of a patriot, which is the uncritical or some people call it blind patriotism. So that it's not just she's here to America all sucks, like Korea does mm -hmm. all the bad things. No, I'm here to like guide you about like how we can as a global citizen, you know, how we can uh, okay, say move beyond the nationalistic teaching of history or nationalistic teaching about nationalistic version of a patriotism. So then my students are looking at, uh, I engage my students are looking at like a Korean because I'm from Korea, so I'm positioning myself, I'm expert of a Korean or I'll engage you. So we look at six countries, like a text, textbook official knowledge from each country what they teach about the Korean war and then we moving on to role play so students take a role from one of the, the six country and then they really live through and act act out as like they believe in in their official truth and then as we're doing the role play students get, and then we debrief our role play get out of our uh, given role and discuss what does it mean to teach about our the international conflict international war in the time of divided world kind of thing so that's how I've been doing, and then as you say, like in a, that, the Korean were kind of helping my student to see me as like, well, she's not just here to America all bad, you know, mm -hmm. what her country, original country, all good kind of thing. She's here to engage, helping us to look at more like you know, metacognitively look at all other country. You know, what's the problem with the nationalist approach about teaching about the world or the, our national history and how we can do better promote like a you know, global citizenship. 
Well, I thought it, I thought it was great because not only did we look at different perspectives of patriotism, different perspectives of war, but we looked at power and how power played into that. And I think your lessons seem like they would really help your teacher candidates really wrestle with those issues in ways some sometimes they probably haven't. So, mm-hmm. thank you so much for putting on the clinic. I know I learned a lot. Thank you. The second pre-summit clinic was incredible and had a couple of our friends who we've had on the podcast, in some cases a few times, it seems like they're starting to try to take over the podcast, which is fine, maybe, maybe they'd be better. And so let me talk, it was Leilani Sabzalian and Sarah Shear, and we've got Sarah here with us to tell us a little bit about what she did in her pre-summit clinic. So my third appearance on... (laughs) On the podcast. So Leilani and I did a clinic on critical orientations for Indigenous studies in elementary social studies methods. So based on Leilani's work and her dissertation research and the, and the things that she's been working on in her writing, we were looking at different Indigenous orientations. So we were looking at place, presence, political sovereignty, perspectives, power, and partnerships. So really centering indigeneity in how we we are thinking about history and geography and civics and just our, our day, our lives. So Leilani unpacked each of those orientations for everyone. And then I showed how I incorporate the orientations into my elementary social studies methods class. And then we challenged our attendees to think about where they are currently in thinking about how and how and if or if not they are already incorporating indigenous studies or indigenous perspectives in their methods classes, how they can do differently, how they can think about the orientations going forward for their students to incorporate the idea and the the truth, the fact that we are always within indigenous contexts, you know, on indigenous lands in the colonization of Turtle Island and how we need to not only acknowledge that, but take responsibility for pushing back and challenging it and disrupting it in ways that are not just about the past, but the present and the future. Because so much of social studies, as we all, as as we all have talked about on the podcast numerous times, so much of where elementary particularly places indigenous peoples and nations is in a very distant past, the very problematic presentations of Thanksgiving and Columbus Day, and how we need to disrupt that and make it an, an empowering space for students, no matter their identity, because the, the future is, you know, whether, wherever you live, you're going to be engaged, whether you realize it or not, in an indigenous space. And in the the ongoing struggles of indigenous peoples working for their self-determination, or if we're looking at a current event like Standing Rock, helping our pre-service teachers understand that, and then how we can help them then teach about Standing Rock to their students so that we can become allies and co-conspirators for change that pushes against colonization rather than continuing to just reinforce it, which is the big big problem in elementary social studies. One thing you did and you always do, I know in your presentations is you recognize the lands of the indigenous peoples. And I've increasingly seen more people do that. But sometimes I wonder if we're starting to just say it and what it, what it means uh, when we're, what does it mean to you and how do you approach it as an educator to think about what it means to recognize the indigenous 
lands on which mm-hmm. we're, you know, at a conference or our school where our school resides um, or other places that we mm-hmm. are. So I think it's really important. And, and Dr. Debbie Reese has written a, a blog post about this and several other indigenous scholars have, have been on Twitter and in other public spaces talking about the land acknowledgement that it's important. It's important to acknowledge and to recognize where we are the lands on whom we are teaching or learning or or whatever we're doing in that space where an acknowledgement is happening. But to stop at the acknowledgement is really problematic because then it just becomes a token. Mm -hmm. It becomes a a check mark on a to-do list. And so when we were doing the acknowledgement, not only for the summit, but then when we did our opening remarks for the whole, you know, for the summit itself, it was not just about acknowledging and recognizing and taking pause to think about where we are, but to then commit to taking action to change our doing, right? So think about who are the, what are the resources? Who are the authors you're including? Mm -hmm. Are you, are you incorporating children's books by indigenous writers that center indigenous characters? Are you incorporating in your syllabus indigenous scholarship critical, deep conversations about settler colonialism, disrupting the canon of social studies, right? So the acknowledgement is one piece of a much longer, lifelong commitment Mm -hmm. to doing. Otherwise, it just becomes, you know, thanks for the acknowledgement, but but then you're just going back to doing the same thing you've always done. Right. Right. So that's why it's important to learn and to take the challenge that Dr. Reese and others in, in, in social media spaces have been talking about the land acknowledgements to yes, acknowledge, and then say to your attendees and to yourselves, what are you going to do about it? What are your next steps? What are the things you are working to do? And it happens in all spaces. So I took a tour of Stanford's campus and, you know, as a probably like a freshman or sophomore gave the tour, but clearly she'd been instructed to do the acknowledgement, you know, but it was so uncomfortable because the way it was done was like the acknowledgement was done and then it moved right into the next thing. And it felt like it almost, it was justifying it. Like, mm-hmm. and it was like on the margins in a literal way. And so I, I appreciate the, you always spend time with it when you do it, I feel like, and obviously it's your life's work. And so you're doing it in so many ways. So I really was impressed by the orientate, the six orientations you and Leilani presented, because I think one thing I've struggled with is, is that I've learned so much from these great indigenous scholars and from the work in you, other, other people in our field have done is I've learned a lot, but it's kind of like, then I'm down to planning lesson. I'm like, oh my gosh, I've learned too much. Like, I don't know what to do. And I felt like the the six orientations really helped me think about how to do it in the classroom. Has that been, has it been really useful for you? Where did those come from? Did they come out of the work you guys did or, or and how ha, ha, have teachers been able to use them successfully? Yeah. So, so I wish Leilani was here because those are her, those are her brainchild. Those came mm-hmm. from, from Leilani's work. And I'm just so incredibly thankful that I get to work with Leilani and learn from Leilani because that's been really something she's worked for years on and has worked with classroom teachers and does professional developments out in Oregon with it. She, she and some of her fellow, cl- the classroom teachers that she's worked with, they actually co-wrote an article about the orientations 
in the in elementary classrooms and it's in the special issue on ethnic and indigenous studies at the Oregon Journal if anyone wants to check it out but that's that is all Leilani I I just feel really appreciative that I got to be a part of it and talk about how what I've learned from Leilani has come into my methods class and completely transformed how I think and act with my pre-service teachers to disrupt everything that I had previously been taught to do in elementary social studies methods. Well, thank you so much for, for helping to get the conference going. And I really appreciate all you're doing for the field. So thanks for coming on. And I'm sure we'll see you in our next 10 episodes. <laughs> thanks, Dan. And so we're going to talk about Noreen Nassim Rodriguez and Riley Drake's session that they led called Fostering Racial Literacy and Inquiry through Angie Thomas's The Hate You Give. I'm here with past guest Noreen Nassim Rodriguez. And she not only just presented, but she was the keynote speaker here at the Elementary Social Studies Education Summit in Wilmington. And so, Noreen, how are you doing? I'm good, Dan. Can you remind people a little bit about your background? I am an assistant professor at Iowa State University in the School of Education, and my work centers on pre- and in-service teachers of color, elementary social studies, the teaching of difficult histories to young children, and the critical use of diverse children's literature. And if you haven't checked out our episode with Noreen on teaching Asian American histories, you definitely should. So I just went to your session and it was awesome. I was rethinking our, you know, the methods courses we do at UNT and what I was doing in yours. So can you tell us a little bit about the work you've been doing? Sure. So in the fall of 2018, we were extremely fortunate to get a Miller Faculty Fellowship from Iowa State University, which is an, an initiative that funds any effort to improve undergraduate education. And the grant that we won was centered around teaching anti-Black racism and concepts around immigration, specifically undocumented immigration, to our undergrads because our pre-service teachers always have lots of questions about these issues, mm -hmm. and they generally don't feel comfortable talking about them, even as adults, much less with children. And so we wanted to be really intentional about reshaping our methods classes to cover those issues. And this grant allowed us to use YA as a common read with our students and then to purchase children's literature that our students could then use to have those conversations with kids in the classroom. Yeah. And I thought your session was great because, you know, you're delving into controversial issues is challenging. And so you did it. Can you tell us a little bit about the strategies you use to help students engage in these conversations? Sure. So we wanted them to understand multiple things. For example, they needed to understand that racism is systemic. It's a contemporary problem, not just something in the past. It's institutionalized in education in particular. And we really wanted them to feel comfortable talking about all of this and thinking about how they can apply anti-Black racism into their classroom practices every day. And so we ended up adding a new textbook to our semester, which is Sarah Ahmed's Being the Change. And that's not a book that I would say is explicitly social studies focused, but it is really centered on understanding students' identities. There's a chapter on microaggressions and having those conversations through that book very early in the semester allowed us to really think about how racialization occurs and how that impacts black youth in particularly in particular and disproportionately in this country so that when we read about it through Angie Thomas's award-winning novel The Hate You Give they came at the book with a very nuanced perspective that perhaps they didn't have prior to reading things like James Baldwin's A Talk to Teachers and some other texts that really focused on the history of racism in the United States. 
And so how did your course shift once you started using these books and kind of rethinking what you were doing? We wanted to use the Hate You Give as a model of how to conduct inquiry so that students could then launch into their own inquiries about issues that they cared about. And so, for example, when we opened it up to them, they wanted to investigate topics like police brutality and parent-child separations at the border and school shootings and Colin Kaepernick's protests um, in the NFL. And so it was really interesting to see how much more deeply they engaged with those topics because they had seen how we modeled it and then they were able to kind of understand it as adults and then think about how you would transfer that knowledge to working through those conversations with the young children. And I would think them helping to choose the topics makes a big difference for them. Absolutely. And this Miller Faculty Fellowship made all of that possible because once they decided on a, on a topic, I could say, hey, find this piece of YA literature. Here are some children's books that might help you. And I could purchase all of those things. So that added inquiry was absolutely possible because we were able to gather all the resources that were specific to their interests that particular semester. And so the first thing you did was you identified the issues, you kind of picked books and things like that. How did you proceed through the rest of the methods course? So typically what we had done in the past was just have one weekly session dedicated to a different discipline. So we had our historical thinking session, we had our geographic thinking section, we had session, we had one on sociological thinking. And what we did differently was we asked our students to stick with those same inquiry topics and think about how those topics were specifically related to issues around geography, economics. What were the dominant narratives around these these particular issues? Could they find primary sources that would disrupt those narratives? So really applying the disciplines to the same topic so that they could see all the different nuances of the social studies through that lens. Well, it was a really cool session. I love all your recommendations for all your YA literature. And I know that maybe we can even add some of those in the show notes because I know you've been collecting great books to use in elementary social studies classes and elementary classrooms. So yeah, we'd be happy to share that. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. So I'm here, and I just went to a really cool Spark session. And the cool thing about the Spark sessions is they're a little different. A lot of conferences, people give presentations, and they just talk a lot. And then the session ends, and you didn't really get to talk, and it goes on all day. And so it could be a little boring. So one of the cool things they're doing here at this conference is they have these Spark sessions where people come up, they give ideas, but really allow some time for conversations and feedback and collaboration. And so I found it really, really cool. And so I'd like to share what we learned at one of our sessions. Do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Yes, my name is Sarah Demoyne. I'm an assistant professor at Auburn University in the elementary ed program. So Sarah, can you tell us a little bit about your session? I think uh, most teachers or people in school have gone on field trips and gone to museums. And you gave us some really interesting ways to think about how to approach those types of experiences. Can you tell us about your session? Yes, so um, I teach elementary pre-service teachers in a social studies methods class, and a lot of times they are still learning historical content knowledge as well. And so um, recently, a counter-monument, the Lynching Memorial in Montgomery, Alabama, opened up, and they have a museum that goes along with it that really focuses on the story of white supremacy told from a black perspective throughout the museum. And so I decided to take my students to this as part of our class, and they really are able to experience what a counter monument is like, which really um, pushes away from our collective memory Mm -hmm. and tries to bring in um, memories of those that are often silenced. So that's a new experience for the students, but they also begin to wrestle with this idea of 
place as they think about where the monument is located. Why is it in that place? The lynching memorial in Montgomery is up on a hill that overlooks where slave markets used to be in the city. And also the lynching memorial has these still beams with names of lynching victims from counties around the U.S. So my students often go they find their own county and see lynchings that happened there and they never knew. And so they're really sparked to then begin to do research and to think about what has happened in the place where they lived that has been silent. It really prompted them to kind of think about how they're telling history to students and what they need to do to tell the history of their own place. So what did you have to do to prepare them to to go to a counter museum, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of like a counter narrative of a historical textbook that often tells Eurocentric histories and stuff. What did you have to do to pre- prepare your teacher candidates? Right. Well, that's something I'm still figuring out how to do well. But they do do quite a bit of reading from Zen. They read Takaki's A Different Mirror for Young People to really understand what counter narratives mean um, and what they are. Um, and then they do a lot of journaling to reflect on um, what they know, how comfortable they are to talk about race, what they know about lynching history in general. And then while they're at the museum, they spend time identifying parts of the museum where they really feel like they learned a lot, an exhibit that had a strong impact on them. So they'll describe their content knowledge that they learned, the racial knowledge they learned, and then um, describe the emotions that they were feeling during that so that we try to grapple with maybe what, what emotions are they experiencing, why they're experiencing that, and not get stuck in that, but be able to move beyond that to make change. And so part of that was racial pedagogical content knowledge, mm-hmm. which I think you got from Prentice Chandler. Mm-hmm. And it's really, yeah, it's really cool. I, I particularly really liked how you asked a lot of those questions in preparation about what do you already know about racism and lynching and these topics mm-hmm. to allow them an opportunity to write and think about that. And then you continue to explore it. So it was a really cool session. What did you think about the, the session where you got to actually get feedback and, and have conversation with colleagues? I loved it. Um, I was really excited when I saw the call. So after I kind of shared what I did and how I was thinking about the data, I just described a few different theories I was thinking about using um, and was able to get feedback from wonderful scholars in the field that helped me look at a different avenue and a different angle and pushed me further thinking about place. So it was really helpful to get that feedback and um, criticality from others that I can't always get with the colleagues that I'm around who just aren't doing that work. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that was inspiring to me. Okay, great. Well, I appreciate that you give me so many ideas for in my social studies methods classes, but hopefully for classroom teachers too, about how we can approach first, make sure we're going to museums that are ta- telling these ca- counter narratives, these counter museums, but then also kind of doing a lot of this preparation work. So we're excited to kind of learn where this goes for you and, and hopefully you'll keep us updated. Great. Thank you. So I just finished attending. A fantastic session with Becky Christ. Becky, tell us a little bit about yourself so our audience knows who you are. Yeah. Hi. I'm Becky Christ, and I'm an assistant professor of social studies education at Florida International University. I just finished my first academic year over there. And I, my main ac- academic line of research in social studies education is genocide education. So that's the topic you focused on today. So can you tell us a little bit about the session that just occurred and what, what you focused on and what the discussion was about? 
Yeah, so the session was, are students too young to learn about this stuff, teaching about genocide education in elementary classrooms? Um, and I wanted to talk about, uh, kind of talking about what is often termed difficult or controversial topics in elementary classrooms specific to genocide. So first I wanted to kind of get a, get a feel for background knowledge of people who are in the room and kind of talk through what genocide is and who gets to define what genocide is and what counts as genocide and kind of trouble some of those notions that we often see in classrooms, social studies classrooms related to genocide. And then I also really wanted to have a conversation about whether or not it is appropriate and if so, in what context to talk about genocide with young children. And it's a very difficult topic because it's very heavy and there's lots of trauma that could be associated with learning about genocide. But I also think it's really important to have conversations with students of all ages and even adults um, surrounding these aspects because of the impact it can have on, on our world today. So part of the trickiness is even about how we define what is genocide education. Is it teaching directly about the events or is it teaching anti-racist types of curriculum that would help to avoid those types of things? What are some of the, the things you brought up of the, the possibilities and the pitfalls of genocide education in schools? Yeah, so I, I tend to take a kind of a broad definition of genocide education that encompasses a lot of aspects that not necessarily have to do with teaching genocide content in an explicit manner, but that have relation to kind of the lessons that we can learn about humanity from that and how we might make an impact moving forward. So I talk about that first a little bit. And then in terms of pitfalls and possibilities, there's a lot of things that can go terribly wrong, unfortunately, but with lots of content, not just genocide, but things like oversimplifying content, such as like doing things like crossword puzzles or word searches. When you're talking about the vocabulary surrounding genocide, something like that really um, minimizes and trivializes the real lessons that we can learn from genocide. Also things like using literature in classrooms to be very cautious about what we're choosing to use, especially in elementary classrooms where literature is an important component of teaching social studies. We need to kind of interrogate those stories that we're telling and think about, are we using a fictional story and to what end? What is the purpose for including this? And, and how we can kind of pr provide the historical context, context and content that is necessary to actually understand and unpack and interrogate that story. So there was two things I remember from the session that were pitfalls. One was, was storybooks like the, the Boy in the Striped Pajamas, right, which is a fictional account from my understanding and pro does not address the Holocaust in, in ways that are accurate. And then the other thing you mentioned also was potentially the overuse of photographs, potentially trauma-related ones of deaths. Can you speak a little bit to why some of those things can be problematic? Yeah, so in terms of very graphic visual visualizations, that can we we as human beings, I think, kind of attach emotionally differently to images and videos than we do sometimes to words. Although words can also be traumatic, but using photographs in particular about difficult content that are very explicitly used and purposefully used and sparingly used, so that we're not just kind of shock and awe with our students is really important. And I think too, thinking about where you know leading students through kind of critical media literacy in some ways of interrogating where these images originated from, um, because a lot of the images that we're using were made for particular purposes that were not to necessarily show the horror, but rather to show the efficiency of the Nazi regime in the Holocaust, for example. Um, and so kind of leading our students through an interrogation of those images and also preventing kind of direct traumatization by seeing very explicit and very traumatizing imagery. Another thing that I want to bring up is that we have 
there, uh, Schwaber has talked about curricular creep in our curriculum where the Holocaust is being taught earlier and earlier and more and more kind of over time in our in our in the grade levels I and mean, it kind of leads to this phenomenon that students have kind of over time hear it over and over again to a point where they stop caring so I think that's something that we also need to address and then finally if we're only talking about the Holocaust then we're not and we're not teaching about the other genocides students might be- come to believe that that's the only genocide that has ever occurred um, and so we need to also expand kind of what we are talking about in terms of genocide that, yes, teach about the Holocaust. It's, it's a watershed event. It's very important. It has lots of lessons for us to learn from um, because there's a lot of trauma there. But also we need to talk about other places that have experienced genocide in the past and are, that are currently experiencing it today. And to me, that takes a lot of just learning from teachers, right? You have to understand what the, you know, genocide against the Tutsis that happened in 1994, what that is and why, for example, that name is now preferred to Rwandan genocide. Um, understand the Armenian genocide and Cambodian genocide and, and these different events. And if we don't like understand those histories, then it can be kind of difficult to teach about them. So any, any other kind of parting advice as, as educators start to think about, you know, how they can teach about genocide education in elementary? I think when we think about teaching about genocide in elementary classrooms, I think the biggest thing for teachers to do is to interrogate their own like positionality in that in that classroom space with their connection to content, their own histories and identities, the histories and identities of their students, to do the hard work of finding, you know, of doing the research, of finding out, you know, good historical content, finding the good resources, but also, you know, thinking about trauma. We never want to traumatize our students, but a lot of the history that we cover in lots of contents, but definitely genocide is traumatic. And so finding ways to process that with students that are not arbitrary or that would do more harm, such as role play, for example, or um, simulations, but rather thinking about processing that trauma in other ways, I think is important to think about. Thank you so much for all the work you're doing for the field. And we're looking forward to seeing your continued work in the future. Thank you. Thank you. I just attended another great session here at ESSES. And so I want to talk to two of the presenters. Do you all want to introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Sinead now um, at Oklahoma State University. I'm assistant professor of secondary social studies. And I'm Robin Fisher, also at Oklahoma State University, teaching elementary education. So a few of my Oklahoma friends, I always like to connect back with people from Oklahoma, where I'm from. Um, and so they presented on a topic that's really important to me and was a huge part of my development and actually partially why I became a teacher when I learned about the Tulsa Race Massacre and hadn't been taught about it in schools. It made me question a lot about what we were learning in schools. So their session was titled, That Happened in My Backyard. Using the Tulsa Race Massacre to Model Difficult Dialogue. So can you tell us a little bit about what you did in your session? Sure. We kind of took our the participants today through activities that we do with the elementary social studies education students in, in their methods course. And they study the Tulsa Race Massacre as part of that course. They read a couple of books, and then we kind of take them through the history. Sometimes we have the opportunity to actually take them to Tulsa and walk through the area known as Greenwood where this Tulsa Race Massacre happened in 1921. So we kind of talk about that experience that we do with our students um, in, at Oklahoma State and how we use the events of the Tulsa Race Massacre to get our students thinking about race and poverty and social class and how all that has an effect on their students today. And so the Tulsa Race Massacre is an incident in history that was covered up for a long time and wasn't taught in Oklahoma schools and only started to be revived in the 80s, but really not until the 90s and 2000s did it get a lot more momentum. Can you, for people who don't know anything about 
what happened in the Tulsa race massacre because possibly part of that cover up. Can you tell them a little bit about just the historical events? Sure. It, it's an event that happened in 1921. It started off with what I like to call the elevator incident between a young African-American man named Dick Rowland, who was entering an elevator and possibly tripped into a white elevator operator named Sarah Page. We know that she screamed and, and he ran away because he was afraid of what might happen. Um, there was a warrant issued for his arrest for attempted rape. He was arrested and was actually housed kind of in the Tulsa County courthouse and was protected by the local sheriff during the period of time. Of course, this enraged the white community. The black community actually stepped up as well and was trying to protect him. This kind of became altercations, I guess, broke out so that there were thousands of whites and hundreds of blacks who got into an altercation. The whites retaliated and basically burned down the African-American community in downtown Tulsa, or just north of downtown Tulsa, known as Greenwood. And Greenwood, during this period of time, was a very prosperous black community. It was the home of Black Wall Street, which is probably the, the richest black community maybe um, in America at the period of time. And they pretty much burned it to the ground in, in retaliation. Dick Rowland survives the event. Sarah Page never pressed charges. Blacks were blamed for the event. It was called a Tulsa Race Riot for several number of years. Now the language has kind of changed where they're calling it Tulsa Race Massacre just to bring um, everyone's attention to the fact that this was not a action by the black community, which is where an invasion, it's been called the Tulsa Holocaust as well, basically where, you know, Holocaust means to be destroyed by fire. So this idea that someone came in and destroyed an actual community, a thriving community, and even after the event, uh, the whites tried to take away the blacks' homes and, and everything, and, and the blacks had to fight to keep their homes and their land. Many of them were able to rebuild um, and became somewhat of a thriving community again for kind of, kind of urban, what would you call it? Urban renewal, right? <laughs> urban then, renewal in the then. 70s where they kind of destroyed the community by you know basically putting a highway through it. And, and desegregation actually affected the community as well when the blacks weren't spending their money necessarily in their own community anymore, which is, I guess, a story that happens across the country in, in, in many ways. So and that's kind of the, the basics <laughs> of the race, right? There's a lot more that goes on yeah. there, of, you know, basically who's involved, who's the blame. Uh, should should these people get reparations for what happened? There's lots of questions that we're able to bring into our elementary social studies classroom to get our students to discuss and really get them thinking about what it means for, you know, something that really did happen in their backyard. Right. And I was a student in Tulsa who learned nothing in K-12 about the Tulsa race riot, as it was called at the time. And when I, in college, I had the opportunity of choosing a historical topic to study off of a list and I chose that and was just dumbfounded and 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 again thought like what's happening how did I not learn about this this seems important and something we still hadn't fully dealt with and this is you know in the uh, early 2000s and when I was in college so um, so what are some of the activities you do with students um, to kind of help them teach and learn about this well we do a role play um which I don't even know if that's really the right word we want to use for it, but it's different perspectives from people who either witnessed or participated in the Tulsa Race Massacre, and we give students a few minutes to get used to their identity, so to speak, and then meet other people who were involved. And then we set the stage to dissect the story from perspective and tell it from beginning to end. And then we also do literature circles using Dreamland Burning by Jennifer Latham and Tulsa Burning by Anna Myers, really stopping and discussing pivotal points throughout the book leading up to 
the Tulsa race massacre and then um, Dreamland burning really gets into what actually happened from from the character's point of view. See, what else do we do? We do, yeah, we've taken work. field yeah. trips there. Yeah, taking students to Greenwood. Yeah. Walking around in Greenwood today, there's a Greenwood Cultural Center that's kind of a museum um, and a, a monument to the event. There's also mm-hmm. a reconciliation park um, that was built within the last 10 years. Actually, the students can even walk around that to tell a little bit about Oklahoma's history and kind of African-American roles in Oklahoma history from 1840s on, I'll say that. Um, African-Americans roles kind of in the Oklahoma and Oklahoma territories. And so getting students to, to walk through that park and actually walk through Greenwood and just to be there where this happened, it becomes real for them mm-hmm. really quickly. So um, that's an experience that we try to, we, it doesn't happen every semester. Sometimes we're able to take groups and sometimes we're like, eh, we don't have enough time. Not yeah, this time. the problem um, in education. Yeah, mm-hmm. always. But I will say the Reconciliation Park does have a great um, online Walkthrough, I guess it's a virtual mm-hmm. tour. Virtual um, tour. That mm-hmm. If we're not able to actually go there, that's something that we try to Im- incorporate in the class each time if we aren't ab- able to take them there. Well, thank you for doing this. Local history is so important. And like you all said in your presentation, I mean, talking about the Tulsa race massacre mm-hmm. allows them to talk about issues of race, for mm-hmm. example, and understand them today. It's like a way to start learning and talking about those issues through history. So it sounds like you're doing great work. Keep it up. And thank you for talking with me. Thank, thank you. you. So during the lunch on Friday, we got a big announcement. These don't happen all the time in like social studies education. They happen in the world, but we don't always get big announcements in social studies education. So I'm going to turn it over to a past guest and overall social studies superstar, Narina Nassim Rodriguez. Tell us what was the big announcement? So this announcement was made in collaboration with Sarah Pamperin and Katie Solo from Iowa State University. Dr. Sarah Shear sitting right next to me. <laughs> She's just always here now. Dr. Carla Shelby from Michigan. Michigan and Katerina Payne from the University of Texas at Austin. We have been talking and dreaming for quite some time about creating a space that would allow the work that we do in the ivory tower to reach practitioners. And we thought about all the things that were in our way and we talked about all of the things that we would love to do if we could, and we have found a way to make it happen. And so we were happy to announce the launch of the Critical Social Educator, which is an open access journal that we are housing through a platform at Iowa State. And so the website is up. The Critical Social Educator is www.iastatedigitalpress.com tcse. And we will get that in the show notes, so you can just click on the link and check out the new journal. So this journal is pretty different than other journals, and you mentioned that a little bit. What are the things that make this journal different than a lot of other journals that exist in the field? We know that elementary social studies is often given short shrift in the field of social studies education, and while sometimes elementary-focused work will make it into our major journals in the field, it's rarely emphasized. And moreover, rarely is that elementary social studies really critical in nature, oriented towards social justice, anti-racism, anti-colonialism. And we wanted to find a space that would honor that kind of critical elementary social studies work, but also wouldn't silo us. So recognizing that social studies is happening in a lot of other spaces and to welcome in people who might to generally affiliate with literacy or with math or with science or with early childhood. So to not limit people to doing work that is explicitly framed as social studies. We also wanna make sure that we're working with teachers because they're out there doing the work and oftentimes 
they have so much to teach us and we want to be able to collaborate with them and see what what they need that we can support. Um, and so to kind of open up those lines of communications, we were looking for a space that was open access so teachers didn't have to deal with a paywall. They could access it whenever they needed to. That was absolutely focused on elementary, but that also had the practitioner voice present, not just the researcher voice. And so in addition to this critical stance and thinking about both explicit and implicit social studies, the other huge piece was that it needed to be collaborative. And Sarah, I'm going to toss that over to you if you want to talk about the collaborative process a little bit. Yeah, so one of the other things that's going to make the journal different for social studies is that we're going to engage in an open peer review. So joining joining a growing movement across academia to challenge and change our practice related to the editorial and review process. So we're going to have collectives that are that will help move manuscripts through the various stages. So one of the things that was really important to us was thinking about breaking down the hierarchy of peer review of the harmful nature of the the horribly ableist titled blind peer review because that really functions on a problematic premise that if reviewers and authors know each other that somehow we're not going to produce quality work and another problematic premise that reviewers are going to be objective to the work they're reviewing and we know and we've all experienced that that's not true and oftentimes it's it's not even a, a, a idea of being unknown. They know, right? I know if I'm looking at, you know, something you wrote, I can figure it out, right? So, so we want to create a process by which authors and reviewers are working collaboratively to have mentorship, to have a support mechanism, and to critique with care. Right, to really take care of what authors are trying to do and having that feedback loop where they can move their work to publication in a really positive experience and a, a really rich experience of having feedback and being able to call up their, their reviewer and say, can you explain this comment you made? Or I have a question about what you want me to you know, to move or to expand. And so we're going to be building teams. And part of that it will be, so let's say, Dan, you send in a research piece. Some of your reviewers in your feedback group will be classroom teachers who, who will then be called upon to write a short uh, commentary to be published alongside your research piece and then vice versa so that we can, we can bridge, as Noreen was talking about earlier, the, the higher ed, teacher ed researchers and the classroom practitioners so that we are, we are in this community, this family together doing the hard work to change the field and support each other's goals in our, in our individual and collective um, work. I love that. It's almost like we should have a connection to the field we're primarily working with. And I love that idea. I really appreciate it too. Katie Swalwell made a memorable video conference performance during the <laughs> session today. And she, Zoom. yeah, she, we brought her in on Zoom and she, she was really great. And I, I appreciated her comments because she gave a little bit of the history of journals, which I think a lot of people don't talk about. The journals were created to disseminate 
information. And since the rise of the internet, they have, they have changed, flipped that purpose to block information, to put up paywalls. And so the, and so the open access movement, I think, is trying to return to the dissemination of information. And I appreciate moving outside of the corporate control, which I don't understand the costs associated with journals whenever we do all the labor. So thank you for, for putting this journal together. So I had an opportunity to rant for 30 seconds on something I've been, I've been up on that soapbox quite a bit. So. And, and we're going to be sending out invitations for, for folks to join the various collectives for the journal. So keeping an eye out on Twitter and on the Crest Facebook group and in, in, and in other mass email, word of mouth forwards for people to join because the, the more people we have who are sharing in this commitment to doing differently, um, just the stronger the journal is going to be. I'm excited to see it. They are anticipating uh, fall 2019 for the, call. the, the call for the for first call to go out. And so we will all look for that. We'll get this posted up in our show notes. And then who knows, maybe we'll uh, have some people on that publish in this new, excellent, critical, open access, collaborative journal. A lot of adjectives there. Uh, <laughs> Thank you all again for your work for the field. I'm really excited to see where it all goes. Thanks, Danny. Welcome to this first Elementary Social Studies Education Summit. Thank you to Lisa, Liz Bellows, Liz Saylor, Sarah, and Christina for creating this opportunity for us, and to UNC Wilmington for providing us with this space. Yes, could you tell I didn't know how to do that? I got you. <laughs> for providing us with this space and nourishment while we're together. Okay, um, I might need you to help me with that after the video. Thank you. Um, social studies education is a field that has the infuriating tendency to dismiss the social education and civic engagement of our youngest learners. As if community building and social action don't or can't occur before adolescence, and as if children can't or won't ask powerful questions and come up with incredible solutions to the racism and injustice they witness all around them in the classroom, on the playground, and beyond. My talk today is entitled, Why We Can't Wait Toward Transformative Elementary Social Studies Teacher Education, this title draws inspiration from a few sources. First, before the colon, because you know we always have to have a colon, is why we can't wait. This phrase is borrowed from the title of Reverend Martin Luther King Jr.'s book about the 1963 Birmingham campaign. The book elaborates on Dr. King's famous letter from Birmingham jail in which he wrote, Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. These lines are often quoted and celebrated in elementary schools each January. However, in the same way that King's March on Washington speech is reduced to his dream of his children not being judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character, and devoid of his previous words related to America's shameful condition and bankrupt bank of social justice, these lines from the letter from Birmingham jail are also often taken out of context. Dr. King's letter was a direct response to eight white Southern religious leaders who co-signed a statement known as a call to unity. In this letter, these religious leaders chided the black community for engaging in nonviolent protest in lieu of relying on the legal system and local leaders, which had always worked out so well. 
King responded, My friends, I must say to you that we have not made a single gain in civil rights without determined legal and nonviolent pressure. History is the long and tragic story of the fact that privileged groups seldom give up their privileges voluntarily. Individuals may see the moral light and voluntarily give up their unjust posture, but as Reinhold Neiber reminded us, groups are more immoral than individuals. We know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. Frankly, I have never yet engaged in a direct action movement that was well-timed, according to the timetable of those who have not suffered unduly from the disease of segregation. For years now, I have heard the word wait. It rings in the ear of every nigger with a piercing familiarity. This wait has almost always meant never. We live in a country that is considered a bastion of democracy, the land of opportunity and freedom, the home of the brave. In this country, in the year 2019, black children make up 18% of preschool enrollment and 48% of suspended preschoolers. Black youth are twice as likely to be arrested as white youth. American Indian youth are three times as likely as white youth to be held in a juvenile detention facility. And this always happens. I'm like, I'm not going to cry, Sarah. I'm not going to cry. In March alone of this year, 40,000 children were taken into custody at the U.S.-Mexico border by Customs and Border Patrol. Five immigrant children have died in CBP custody since January. And the current administration just announced that it will cancel English classes, recreational programs like soccer, and legal aid to minors staying in federal migrant shelters across the country. In 2019, we do not all have the same opportunities. We're not all free. How can all children have access to freedom and education in a system that begins punishing them in preschool, or as we're seeing now, the second they cross the border? How long must we wait for every teacher to recognize that all students bring knowledge with them every day? How long must we wait for every child to have the opportunity to feel safe in school, to feel like their teachers see them as human and worthy of attention, as capable of learning and succeeding? As a graduate of public high school and public university, a former public school teacher, a professor at a public university, and the parent of public school students, I think it's safe to say that I believe in the power and promise of public schooling. I have succeeded personally and professionally because of public schooling. But y'all, we have work to do. I self-identify as Pakapina, the product of a Muslim Pakistani and a Catholic Filipina, the US-born child of immigrants from Asia. The languages of my parents were never present in school and not at any point in my 12K, PK through 12 education did I learn about the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act that allowed my parents and millions of other immigrants from Asia to immigrate to the United States. As a brown-skinned, black-haired, ethnically ambiguous child in San Antonio, Texas, I blended in with my peers. However, even though I didn't stand up physically, my 10th grade U.S. history teacher made very clear to everyone that I was a mystery to her and very clearly different from everyone else. Maureen, she asked one day, um, to me and only me, where are your people from? Those of you who know me personally have probably heard the story before. That was the day that I decided that American history was not worth learning because it had nothing to do with me or the people I cared about. If Mrs. Garena had taught us that the first Filipinos landed in Morro Bay, California in 1587, I guarantee she would have proudly heard me declare my Filipino identity in class. If Mrs. Garena had included Punjabis in her description of laborers who had contributed to the building of the Transcontinental Railroad or worked in agriculture on the West Coast, my interest might have been piqued. 
My father's from the Sindh province, but Punjabis are Pakistani, and that would have been enough for, of a connection for me. Instead, as you might have guessed, Mrs. Garena had no inclination to teach any version of U.S. history that deviated from the dominant narrative in our textbook. No version of U.S. history that might have better reflected and deliberately included the students sitting before her every day. Luckily, I found reflections of myself elsewhere. You're at the Babysitter's Club. I'm dating myself a little bit. I need hands. Okay, thank you. Remember Claudia? What? <laughs> um, she was an artist, a dreamer, a fashionista. All the things I wanted to be, but I didn't have parental permission or the independent financial means to make them so. Are you with me, Annie? <laughs> she had straight, long black hair, almond-shaped eyes, and olive skin. And I didn't really know what any of those things meant, but certainly those, I figured those descriptions could apply to me, and we had to be more like than I was to the character of Dawn, who had white blonde hair and blue eyes, or Marianne, who had brown hair and brown eyes and unpierced ears. Most importantly, Claudia was Japanese-American. She didn't eat macaroni or casseroles at home, and her parents expected her to make straight A's and be a dutiful daughter. I wasn't Japanese-American, but my parents were from Asia, so I could certainly relate deeply to the rest. By the way, these aren't actual babysitter's club covers. Um, <laughs> um, they've been modified by Phil Yu, who is also known as the blogger Angry Asian Man. While Babysitter's Club number 56, entitled Keep Out Claudia, did indeed deal with Claudia's encounter with a racist family, the series generally avoided anything related to racism in its run of over 200 books. You decided to reimagine how Babysitter's Club books might have looked if they actually dealt directly with the stereotypes and racism Claudia faced in small-town Connecticut. But back to me. The summer after Mrs. Garena's terrible 10th grade history class, I discovered Arundhati Roy's The God of Small Things. This launched a decade-long obsession with literature about the South Asian diaspora. It didn't always relate to the, I didn't always relate to the characters, many of whom were Hindu, while I was raised Muslim, and lived around other desis, um, a word we use to describe others with origins in the Asian South Asian subcontinent. But to finally read books that describe meals with familiar foods and parents who use the same non-English words of affection that I had grown up with? Well, frankly, there's nothing like that, especially when you've gone 16 years without knowing that such possibilities existed. What I'm describing is a concept theorized by literary scholar, uh, by literacy scholar Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop. She argued that literature transforms human experience and reflects it back to us. And in that reflection, we can see our own lives and experiences as part of the larger human experience. Reading, then, becomes a means of self-affirmation, and readers often seek their mirrors in books. For many years, non-white readers have too frequently found the search futile. After citing statistics about the state of diverse children's literature at the time and several research studies analyzing the presence of characters of color, Dr. Sims Bishop continued, when children cannot find themselves reflected in the books they read, or when the images they see are distorted, negative, or laughable, they learn a powerful lesson about how they are devalued in the society of which they are a part. You see, while some books may serve as mirrors for those who are marginalized in society, whether due to their race, language, culture, religion, ability, gender, sexuality, immigration status, class, or family makeup, or any combination of these aspects of identity, it is far easier to find books that don't reflect their experiences. These types of books are what Dr. Bishop refers to as windows, books that offer views of worlds that may be real or imagined, familiar, or strange. 
Dr. Bishop said that children from dominant social groups have always found their mirrors in books, but they too have suffered from the lack of availability of books about others. They need the books as windows onto reality, not just imaginary worlds. They need books that will help them understand the multicultural nature of the world they live in and their place as a member of just one group, as well as their connections to all other humans. In this country where racism is still one of the major unresolved social problems, books may be one of the few places where children who are socially isolated and insulated from the larger world may meet people unlike themselves. If they only see reflections of themselves, they will grow up with an exaggerated sense of their own importance and value in the world, a dangerous ethnocentrism. Dr. Bishop wrote these words in 1990, nearly 30 years ago. Five years before Dr. Bishop wrote her foundational piece on Windows and Mirrors, in 1985, the director of the Cooperative Children's Book Center at the University of Wisconsin-Madison was serving as a member of the Coretta Scott King Award Committee. This award is sponsored by the American Library Association and is given annually to outstanding Black authors and illustrators of children's and young adult books that demonstrate an appreciation of Black culture and universal human values. CCBC Director Ginny Moore Cruz discovered that of the 2,500 trade books published in 1985, only 18 were created by Black authors and or illustrators and therefore were eligible for the Coretta Scott King Award, 18 books. Thus began the CCBC's effort to document the numbers of books published annually by Black authors and illustrators. In 1994, the CCBC extended their efforts to include Asian, Asian American, Pacific Islander, First Nation, and Latinx authors and illustrators. And here's an illustration of their findings from 2012. We see that 3% of the books out of the 3,600 received by the CCBC. So it's not a comprehensive look, but it's a fair uh, assessment. 3% were about African Americans, 1.5% were about Latinos, less than 1% about Native Americans, 2% were about Asian Pacific Americans. Please note that when I say this, sometimes it means Asian, sometimes it means Pacific Islander, sometimes it means Asian Pacific Islander American, and a lot of times those distinctions aren't clear. So my experience, not the same as someone who lives in China and is Chinese, right? We're still lumped all together. Of course, that's applicable to all these other groups, right? That leaves 93% of books in 2012 with white main characters, mostly male. This is 2015. I'll give you a second to look at that. That's a little easier to read. And if you can do some quick mental math, you may notice that the percentage of books featuring character of color, characters of color barely exceeds the number of books with non-human main characters, just by a little under 2%, I believe. Now the graphic for 2018 is still in progress and I really tried to get y'all a sneak peek. I was begging, but alas, hard data will have to do. It's not ready for public, for the public consumption yet. Um, I want to give you a second to look at this. I know it's very small. Um, and you can also access it at the CCBC's website. This is data from the last 16 years. And if nothing else, for most groups, but certainly not all, the numbers at the bottom are smaller than the numbers at the top, so we've seen increases. But here I focus just on the books about different racial groups, which doesn't give us any information about who wrote these books, and thus these figures don't even begin to, to um, 
address issues of accuracy and authenticity in terms of the depiction of experiences. But we can see that while the percentage of books about different ethno-racial groups has increased, it's not at all at parity with representation in the U.S. population for all groups. And again, how authentic any of these are in terms of representation is something we can't assess through these numbers. This means that for students who are not white, there is a grossly disproportionate number of published books that exist that may reflect their ethno ethno-racial and cultural experiences, but just books that exist. That doesn't necessarily mean that these books are available in school or public libraries, bookstores, or classrooms. The availability of these books is determined by gatekeepers, too. This lack of diverse books has proven particularly challenging for me as a parent. My husband is Mexican-American, and as a Pacapina, that means our children are Mexi-Pacapina. As a longtime lover and voracious reader of children's literature, as well as someone who continues to search for books that are mirrors to my experiences, I'm constantly on the lookout for books with which my daughters will make personal connections, whether based on ethnicity, language, phenotype, interests, hobbies, or any other aspect of their, their identities or personalities with which they can see a reflection of themselves. Now, this is where things become tricky for me in my role as a mother scholar, and I want to give a quick shout out to all the parent scholars in the room. Being a parent is incredibly hard. And being a teacher and or academic is also incredibly hard, but being both, you're often pulled in a dozen different directions, and sometimes it feels like there's no way to do justice uh, to either role. I'm an assistant tenure-track professor at a predominantly white research institution working in a teacher preparation program that is 94% white. I'm also the brown-skinned mother of mixed-race children who attend a public school in central Iowa, where their teachers read aloud the same books that I read in elementary school 30 years ago. From Charlotte's Web to Dear Mr. Henshaw and The Indian in the Cupboard, and that was just this past third grade year. Over the years, I've tried a variety of approaches to help improve the number of mirror books in my children's classroom library. Um, I've had a range of experiences and varying <laughs> levels of not success. <laughs> but I was most successful this year with Lucia's third grade teacher, who happily accepted the two tote bags full of picture books about immigration that my daughter had to lug to school when I found out they were doing an Ellis Island simulation. But because I can't always guarantee that my children's teachers will take seriously my book and curricular recommendations, and even worse, that they will even teach social studies, I make sure to find the mirrors as often as possible and to make those books available at home. So I'd like to share a couple of my favorites with you. This first one is Lucia the Luchadora, and a lot of y'all saw Lucia and I come in last night. Sorry, photobombing everything. <laughs> um, my husband is a big fan of Lucha Libre, or Mexican wrestling. My daughter Lucia is named after my maternal grandmother, so while it's a typical Spanish name, it also has Filipino roots because colonialism and imperialism. Um, but being able to find a book with a character with my daughter's name, Accent and All, with golden brown skin, who is a luchadora, was pretty amazing. This is Jasmine Taguchi, Mochi Queen. Oddly, this has some parallels to the Babysitter's Club because Jasmine, like Claudia Kishi, is Japanese-American. And remember, neither I or my daughter is Japanese-American. But look, Jasmine is super spunky. So is my younger daughter, Sophia. Jasmine has jet black hair, side-swift bangs, and loves tutu skirts. So does Sophia. And most importantly, they both love mochi. Mochi is a delicious Japanese dessert made out of glutinous, corn, uh, glutinous flour, uh, glutinous rice, cornstarch, water, and sugar. It can be plain, flavored, or have a filling. And my daughter's favorite kinds of mochi are wrapped around strawberry and coffee ice cream, and they look just like these. So for all these very significant reasons, this was the perfect book for her. 
There's one more book that I love that I'd like to share. And it's a book that you all have the tremendous fortune of already having in your possession, thanks to our generous SE's organizers. It's a book that I desperately wish that Sophia had the chance to read on her first day of school. A day that I recount often to the pre-service teachers that I work with. For her, the transition from public school from Montessori was hard. Really hard. As in, the principal had to drag her into the building every morning for the first two months of school hard. As in, she cried all day long every day for the first two months of school. Dried salt streams on her cheeks at the end of the day because she was overwhelmed and didn't have any friends and struggled with transitions and just wanted to be with her family. She needed a story that helped her understand that all these feelings were normal, even though the other kids in her class didn't cry as much as she did and didn't seem to outwardly struggle. She needed a mirror for the fear and anxiety she was feeling. Jacqueline Woodson's The Day You Begin is that mirror. It's a book that I believe belongs in every elementary classroom and should be read the first week of school. It so beautifully describes the isolation and fear one feels when starting in a new place. But what makes this book so deeply important to me is not just the story it tells. It's the children who are featured visually, children with dark skin and curly hair with names like Rigoberto and Angelina, children on the autism spectrum, like the one based on illustrator Rafael Lopez's son, who find solace in books and nature and don't really spend time with their peers. Children like my daughters, who have been in three different schools in the last three years, and children like this one, who bring the beloved foods of home for lunch and are mocked because their food is a far cry from the sandwiches and chips that are deemed the norm. And even though they have brought a food they find delicious, made with love by family, because their classmates call it stinky and gross, they resolve to never bring it back to school again. What I have just described is what many Asian Americans refer to as a lunchbox moment. I'm sharing a lot of tidbits with you today, stories that reflect the embarrassments and frustrations of immigrant children and the children of immigrants, which you may never have heard of or experienced. But when I talk to teachers and students of color, they often share similar stories with me. And I need you to understand the impact that such small moments during the school day can have on one's sense of self and one's understanding and appreciation of their own culture. And this scene from The Day You Begin is one of the only authentic literary reflections of these lunchbox moments that I've witnessed that is depicted in a way that centers on the impact of those moments. And I had a better screenshot, but you'll have a book, so it's fine. Now this is where things, oh, sorry, I lost my face. This lack of diverse stories is what English professor and Pulitzer Prize winner Viet Thanh Nguyen describes as narrative scarcity in which members of marginalized groups feel deprived and must fight to tell our own stories and fight against the stories that distort or erase us. Narrative scarcity is the lack of characters who look like us, and when they look like us, we're not really human. He, he talks a lot about depictions of the Vietnam War in movies. This helps explain the immense popularity among the Asian American community around Crazy Rich Asians, and more recently, Always Be My Maybe. These major motion pictures were unique in their all Asian and Asian American casts, acting out stories that demonstrated a range of unique personalities that reflect the incredible diversity of Asian America beyond the stereotypes of the model minority and the exotic foreigner. However, undoubtedly, two movies is not enough. Teaching two moments of Asian American history is not enough. We need to transcend narrative scarcity and shift toward what Wynne calls narrative plenitude. In social studies spaces, Students and teachers can list off dozens of powerful white men who have contributed to the history of the United States and across the globe. For everyone else, we continue to have narrative scarcity, but it doesn't have to be that way. 
which 15 minutes or more later, brings me to the second part of my title toward transformative elementary social studies teacher education. This talk is also inspired by the work of the incredible Dr. Bettina Love, who describes America's educational history as overrun with dark suffering. From native boarding schools to school segregation, English-only instruction to character education, and no child left behind to school choice and charter schools. These are all components of an educational system built on the suffering of students of color, or what Dr. Love terms the educational survival complex. According to Dr. Love, we cannot pursue educational freedom or any type of justice without a model of democracy that empowers all. We all thrive when everyday people resist, when everyday people find their voice, when everyday people demand schools that are students' home places, and when everyday people understand that loving darkness is our path to humanity. So how in elementary social studies and elementary social studies teacher ed do we get to this place where all of us are not just surviving, but thriving? We must transform the way we engage with our work all day, every day. In this effort, I have three asks of you. The first is for you to engage in the work of abolitionist teaching. Abolitionist teaching is the practice of working in solidarity with communities of color while drawing on the imagination, creativity, refusal, remembering, visionary thinking, healing, rebellious spirit, boldness, determination, and subversiveness of abolitionists to eradicate injustice in and outside of schools. To begin the work of abolitionist teaching and fighting for justice, the idea of mattering is essential in that you must matter enough to yourself, to your students, and to your students' community to fight. Abolitionist teaching is choosing to engage in the struggle for educational justice, knowing that you have the ability and human right to refuse oppression and refuse to oppress others, mainly your students. In social studies, possibilities for abolitionist teaching are everywhere working in solidarity with community groups to address issues that impact students, reimagining and rewriting curricula to provide both examples of and strategies for resistance, protecting and standing in solidarity with immigrant communities, and engaging in civics education that teaches direct action and civil disobedience while incorporating the social media techniques of the current generation. Abolitionist teaching is calling out racist teachers who demean, diminish, and in the case of this recently fired educator from Fort Worth, who made national headlines this week, both verbally and physically abusing youth of color. Look this up if you haven't heard about it. It is appalling how long she has been doing this to kids. This woman taught for 21 years. We cannot allow such harm to occur in any space we purport to be educational. Abolitionist teaching is about finding new ways to show marginalized children that they are loved in this world and to establish an educational system that works for everyone. What everyday practices do you engage in that may cause harm to students, that might make them feel unwelcome, unwanted, unsafe? Is your sarcastic sense of humor worth the harm it might impose on a student who's been the target of slights and cool words for years? Is your incredulity at linguistic or cultural difference or refusal to learn how to pronounce a child's name worth the damage it might inflict on a student's self-worth and or cultural and linguistic identity? Don't even get me started on changing kids' names because you don't know how to pronounce them. That's a whole other talk. How can we be more intentionally and more often uplift and engage students and reduce any possibility of humiliating and silencing the very students that we are supposedly there to serve? In abolitionist teaching, uplifting humanity is at the center of all pedagogical decisions. Moreover, as Dr. Love reminds us, Pedagogies that promote, so, that promote social justice must have teeth. 
They must move beyond feel-good language and gimmicks to help educators understand and recognize America and its schools as spaces of whiteness, white rage, and white supremacy, all of which function to terrorize students of color. Teaching strategies and education reform models need to be rooted in an abolitionist praxis that, with urgency, embraces what seems impossible. Education for collective dignity and human power for justice. And what better place for this work than in social studies education? And who better to start with than our youngest learners? Which brings me to my second ask. I know that many of you here today identify as elementary social studies teacher educators, or to be but there are also other stakeholders in the room, some of who do work in school districts or in other aspects of teacher preparation that include secondary education. What are you doing in your classroom or the classrooms that you impact that needs to end if our purpose is indeed the pursuit of freedom and justice for all? To my fellow teacher educators, what readings and practices do you promote and perpetuate that continue to foster oppression through ongoing marginalization? Are there texts you assign because they're essential reading, or part of a supposed social studies education canon. Mm -hmm. But they ultimately maintain the status quo by limiting civic engagement to personally responsible practices or centering white middle class norms. Are you adding historical thinking with primary sources to a narrative that ultimately perpetuates American progress and exceptionalism without ever mentioning settler colonialism, white supremacy, anti-black racism, imperialism, militarism, genocide, or capitalism? Using these texts and narratives out of obligation will not help us all thrive. That is not abolitionist practice. As Nambe Pueblo scholar Debbie Reese said in her recent Arbuthnot lecture, all children are shaped by what they read in books. The words and illustrations children see in their books can reflect their existence or mock their well-being. Let's do a quick activity. Take... Um, a couple minutes and grab a piece of paper. You can do it on your phone. You can do it mentally, whatever's best for you. But I want you to think about three books from your childhood that you love. three. Now we will put our teacher hats on. List another three or four trade books, picture books, chapter books, practitioner articles, whatever you want, that you use regularly in your classroom. Write those down, think about them, put them on your computer. ready? Thumbs up if you have your list of childhood and classroom faves ready to go. Give you another minute. In two weeks, I'm doing a social studies professional development workshop in Iowa, sponsored by the Department of Education. There's going to be 170 elementary teachers present, and I'm going to ask them to create similar lists. 
and then we're going to watch this video. So I wanted to share it with you all as well. Hopefully, summer vacation has allowed many of you to catch up on your reading. Tonight, beloved children's book author Grace Lynn asked us to think back on the books we read as children and are still reading today. She offers her humble opinion on how some of our favorite characters may need some reconsideration. Do you have an old children's book you love? One of those classic books that you read with your kids because your parents read it with you and so on? Well, there's a good chance that it might be racist. Whenever I say this, people get so offended, and I'm always a little surprised. You do realize that these books were written 60, 70, maybe 100 years ago? Don't you think the world was a little more prejudiced back then? So why wouldn't the books be, too? Here's an example. When I was about eight, all my friends were reading Little House on the Prairie. Do you remember it? Well, one of the lines repeated throughout the series is Ma hates Indians. Anytime Pa tries to say something good about Indians, Ma bristles. She just hates them that much. I never really thought about that until one day, a friend and I decided to play Little House on the Prairie. My friend said to me, you be Ma and I'll be Daddy. I'm going out and you're worried about Indians because Ma hates Indians. So my friend leaves and I'm all alone telling myself, I'm worried because Ma hates Indians. Ma hates Indians. And as I repeat these words, suddenly it hits me. If Ma hates Indians, what would she think of me, an Asian American girl? If Ma hates Indians, wouldn't she probably hate me too? And at eight years old, I felt the impact of that racism. It was a horrible feeling. In that instant, I realized I might always be a foreigner in my own country, and that people would hate me just because of the way I look. But here's the flip side. A few years later, I heard my uncle say that he didn't want my cousin to be friends with another kid because he was black. I did a double take. How could my dear uncle say something like that? But then I remembered Little House on the Prairie and how Ma, loving, kind Ma, hated Indians. And I suddenly understood. Sometimes good people, people you love, aren't always right. And that is how I feel about these classic books. I'm not saying we should ban them. I'm saying we should treat them like out-of-touch relatives. We all have that friend or uncle, or maybe even a parent, who believes in things you don't agree with. You can still love that relative, and you can still let them be a part of your child's life. But because you know they might say something you don't like, don't you try to keep an extra ear open in case they say something in front of your child? And then, don't you explain afterwards? That's what I'm saying about these classic children's books. Read them, share them, even love them. But make sure you talk to your kids about them too. Oh, here. I used to know how to use technology. I used to. And then I graduated. So. Um, all right. So I want to ask you to take Lynn's words to heart 
and do what my friends in literacy call reading with and against the text. Is there a book on your list to which your critiques might apply? If you can replace a racist text, do. There's so much more available to us today, and it's important that we elevate the voices that have traditionally been most marginalized and provide students with a rich array of, array of windows and mirrors to learn from and relate to. As you attend today's rich array of sessions, you will learn about a range of efforts to improve social studies education and social studies teacher education. Commit to enacting changes toward abolitionist praxis by improving upon some aspect of your teaching and the resources you use. I guarantee you there are pedagogical innovations and incredible resources to be shared by all the folks around you today. Listen to each other, learn from each other, and go home and use what you've learned to improve your practice in transformative ways that move us all forward toward to abolitionist teaching. This only works if we're all in, all of us. My third and final ask is for you to disrupt narrative scarcity by passing the mic. Earlier, I mentioned that The God of Small Things was a rare mirror of South Asian experiences for me. Its author, activist Orundati Roy, has said, there's really no such thing as the voiceless. There are only the deliberately silenced or the preferably unheard. When you have the privilege of having a stage to share your thoughts or expertise, instead of alleging to be a voice for the voiceless, pass the mic. Let those who are often denied opportunities to share their stories share your space. Or better yet, cede your space entirely, if and when you can. For my white colleagues in particular, and especially those of you who are tenured, many of you have platforms in which you are viewed as the expert. Use your expertise to bring in those who have firsthand experiences that you don't, and whose more recent entrance into the profession means that they don't have the tenure, name recognition, or networks that you possess. When I was asked to give this keynote, I wasn't quite sure why. Uh, I'm in my second year on the tenure track in a Midwestern university that people often confuse with other states that start with I or have four letters. Um, but I've been in teacher education for six years and elementary education nine years prior to that. I research elementary pre and unservice teachers of color and how they can teach powerful histories to young children that are rarely found in any textbook or Pinterest lesson. I've witnessed firsthand the way second graders can beautifully articulate the injustice of Japanese-American incarceration during World War II and make connections to the Native American and Black experience in both the past and the present. This work is possible, but it is not yet mainstream. Asian-American stories are not yet mainstream. And my Pacapina story may be the first that you've heard. By creating this opportunity for me, the leadership team here at SE has absolutely embodied this third ask of passing the mic. They created a space where many, they've also created a space here that many of us were yearning for. They brought us together and then they stepped back to let others do the talking. Thank you so much to them and to all of you for listening. I was gonna show a clip from The Goonies. If you've not heard of The Goonies, you need to Google it and watch it all. And then you will understand this reference. Um, but I hope you all will join me on this journey toward transformative elementary social studies and elementary social studies teacher education. Let's start today. So we have we have a few minutes if anyone has any questions for Dr. Rodriguez. Feel free to ask. We'll, we'll take about five minutes. If there's any questions, comments? 
my social studies methods class had like anchors text is perhaps more critical. I mean, I've driven a lot of critical additional pieces, but like the anchor text piece that I use is not critical. And that's like the anchor text um, learning that everyone uses. So it's like brought in way close to back to 2007. I'm not trying to speak for the SES folks, but I know that's something that we hope we can all figure out today, right? Yeah, for sure. I don't use an anchor text just because of the problem yeah. of yeah. the canon of social studies. So, I mean, I like all PDF yeah. stuff. There's one book that all I started the using. I'm yeah, probably violating. Yeah. yeah. But it's not a social studies book, yeah. is the thing, right? Like, yeah. this will get you toward that. But at my institution, the teacher prep program should use this before they come to my methods class, and they don't. So I've squeezed this in in between um, all these other readings, yeah. right? And I think, I don't know. Maybe we, Sarah, do you think we can start like a Google Doc where we can like start plopping in stuff? Yeah, we can start, a, I'll, I'll open a Google Doc in the shared drive and people can start just throwing titles, yeah, titles in, yeah. Because I know just when we all talk or when we get on the Crest book or the Crest Facebook group or just any other, you know, random social media posts, we're always talking about that question, like what should we use? Mm -hmm. I don't think any of us has one single thing that says what we want it to be. So it is like a hodgepodge of yeah. stuff, but I think also come August, a lot of us are also like, hey, we can do something like a free economics, right? So yeah. I think yeah. for, for me, the most important thing, whether it's an undergrad methods course or MAT or even a graduate MED, you know, leadership type uh, course, to me, the most important thing is to be current with what's happening in scholarship, whether it's something you want to present to be challenged, or whether it's something that is the newest work that's being done on this thing, uh, instead of picking a book and sticking with it over time. We've all been enrolling courses like that through either our undergrad or PhD program or whatever, where you know we needed a newer version, we had a newer perspective on something. But the other thing that I would say, and Sarah has been really good um, to challenge me about this in my own coursework, which is you're thinking about a topic, a strand, not only look to see who's doing current work in that, but every time it's possible to have an in-group perspective to honor that. Um, so when you want to, when you want to look at American Indian um, work, go to an in-group author, you know, um, and so forth. And so to me, that's been the most important thing that's really challenged me since I started um, is to think about who who might be a voice here that we all need to see. And I would agree that none of our Sort of textbooks on elementary and social studies do that. Do that. We'll give a shameless plug for this great book that came out last year <laughs> about teaching controversial topics. But even within that, we have a variety of voices. Um, so it's not a textbook per se, it's a collection of works in K 12 and teacher ed. Um, so, and there are also people in here that are in middle grades and secondary that do similar things if anybody else mm -hmm. wants to share. Which is Specifically, but a little closer than the Ahmed book. Mm -hmm. So that's one that some people like and 
historic district. As for them, kind of find a way to weave in troublemakers. Again, like we always find these things that aren't social studies, right? But we do a lot of talk about inadvertent social studies in our methods class. Like, we are teaching social studies every day in elementary school, but it's just not on the books, right? And so we talk about that a lot. Like, when you line up kids to the bathroom, what's that method? You know what I mean? And so finding a way to pull in those stories and looking at kids in their home space and in the classroom, I think, I don't know, I just feel like I need that in my social studies classroom. For my, for my students to see students outside of the school. Mm -hmm. Now I can just add one more thing to try to think about it not necessarily being apprentice scannable effects, although there are plenty of those. We have some really good podcasts in our field that can be used just to start conversations. We have lots of films. Um, Dr. Rodriguez's keynote was videotaped this morning, so that'd be a great thing for you guys to use in your methods class. Um, so think past, you know, textbooks per se, um, and even practitioner articles necessarily, but it can all be critiqued and we can all extend and add to it, but think about some audio and video resources for things like that. Visions of Ed is definitely Visions of Ed, Visions of Ed, too. Yeah, not saying anything. They are tweeting something. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'll just add one thing to what um, the presenters are saying. Um, Lisa, who, you know, now um, does a really great job of bringing in living text. She brings in speakers a lot, and um, we have several faculty members who do that. And, you know, we can't know everything. We can't go back and undo things, but we can bring in people who are current voices and can say what how it impacts. And I think that idea of the living text and speakers has really helped our students. <coughs> other questions or comments? Okay, if we can give one more round of applause. Thank you guys. So the next, the next set of sessions starts at 9.30. So if you haven't chosen where you're going yet, we can take some time to to check the programs. The rooms are all going to be upstairs on the second floor. Um, we'll start at 9.30, so plenty of time to, you know, meander, go to the bathroom. Yeah. And we'll encourage every session. I can't look at the table of contents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, definitely not a social studies class, but we can help you have some conversations. And we will all be in the room to begin to introduce everyone Almond and or no, Alderson, 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 Alder
And this is the Visions of Education podcast signing off. <laughs> That's all we need. I was listening to your. <laughs>